If you are looking for the front page of DeFi, look no further than Zerion.io. Zerion is your home base for managing your DeFi portfolios. Zerion offers a central place for you to engage with all of the DeFi protocols and assets that you engage with on a daily basis, but all in one central spot. Here you can see I've loaded up a wallet and Zerion is giving me the portfolio performance of all the assets in this wallet over time, as well as a breakdown of all the assets that I own, as well as all of my transaction history that I've ever done in an easy to view fashion. Zerion also lets you invest right into DeFi's best yielding financial opportunities right from their homepage. Zerion also makes it super easy to access interest in DeFi using applications like Compound and Aave in the background. And you can also exchange your assets using the Zerion app, using an exchange aggregator in the background to make sure that you always get the best rates. You can even use the Zerion mobile wallet to add your MetaMask or Argent or another Ethereum address right into your mobile wallet so you can see your portfolio and engage in DeFi on the go. Here I just loaded up my Argent wallet and now I'm going to load up my MetaMask as well. And Zerion will do the same thing. It will add all of my assets and wallets together all in one space and give me a portfolio summary of what's going on. Adding wallets is trivially easy. If you already have a MetaMask, you can get it right into the Zerion app and it can sync with your desktop app as well. And the best part is you can also buy Ether right into the app itself. Use the invest tab to look at all the things that you have invested in as well as other opportunities. And coming soon to the Zerion app is the ability to buy and sell your assets straight from your mobile device as well. So download the app. It works on iOS and Android. Go to Zerion.io, plug in your wallets and get a historical report of your portfolio over time, as well as a comprehensive breakdown of all the assets that you own and how much yield they're generating for you. We're also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is your cool new DeFi account, your DeFi savings account, your DeFi checking account. Except the cool thing about the Monolith DeFi account is that it gets software updates, right? You actually get to increase the usefulness of this over time. So here are some of the features. Monolith is a smart contract wallet with a lot of the features that you would expect if you've come to know DeFi and what it is, you can you can add money to it. You can put that money to work uh, in Compound and, and accessing yield. Uh, but you can and you can also swap through Uniswap. What was cool with Monolith is that they will send you a very sexy Monolith Visa card that connects to your smart Monolith smart contract wallet on Ethereum. So it's a really awesome tool to live a bankless life with a, a, a savings account that gets software updates. So this is, this is something that you're never gonna find out in the real world, but you can still do real world things with you know real money in, like buy your groceries. So that's just fantastic. Coming soon to Monolith, actually already here to Monolith, is now you can buy DAI and get it sent to your wallet directly, right? So it's also being an on-ramp. So you don't have to go through your centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or wherever. You can just go straight from your bank account right into your Monolith checking account smart contract wallet. So check them out at monolith.xyz. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 24 of State of the Nation. We are in a bull market, my friends. Dave and I are super excited to be with you at the very forefront of it. Let's talk about State of the Nation. What we do is talk about what's happening in crypto and relate it to you in insights and action items. This episode comes out every Tuesday. We release it on YouTube and it comes out live on YouTube and you also get it in bankless podcast form. So however you like to tune into State of the Nations, 
audio, video, you've got it both ways. Today, we are bringing on Nick Carter. This is his fifth appearance on Bankless. So he is a veteran guest. Uh, we're really excited to have him to talk about the bull market. And then David, uh, what, what are we talking about after that? So Nick Carter is going to come on and talk about all the different metrics that are, are at all time highs for the Bitcoin ecosystem. We're also going to ask him about like, well, why is this Bitcoin? Why is this bull market different than the last bull market? Like, what are the new what's the new infrastructure like? Like, why is this unique and, and different from the last time we've seen these bull markets before? Nick's going to answer that question for Bitcoin. And then in the second half of the show, you and me, Ryan, are going to answer that same question for Ethereum, because Ethereum has gone through plenty of growth and maturity and development. And so a bull market that happens on Ethereum is not going to look like the same bull market that happened in 2017. So we're going to do a little bit of comparison here. Absolutely. All right, guys. And uh, before we get to the show and introduce Nick yet again, uh, let's talk about a few things that are new. David, we had our episode with Melton Demirs coming out mm -hmm. that came out this Monday, actually. And that was a spicy episode. It was a lot of fun. Like, I think it was uh, the most fun I've had on a podcast for sure. I'm, you know, maybe it was also the, the spiciest episode where we got into this conversation about Bitcoin versus Ethereum mm -hmm. and tribalism. Yep. Um, but I feel like it ended in a in a really good place. Uh, what What was your take on that? Yeah, Meltem is just a ball of energy, and so making making a, a show with her was, was a ton of fun. Uh, and she comes in with uh, just a bunch of data and metrics, and she has slides that she uh, shared. And so that was actually our first video podcast. Uh, and so the the start of the conversation is all about how like the state of the world is now different, right? In in the same theme of things that are different nowadays, uh, she comes in and and with just this torrent of data and shows like, well, the the world is about to go. Basically, the conclusion was money printing. This is a theme that you hear on all crypto podcasts, Bankless, no exception. Uh, and then we kind of turn into the, we do a little bit of a pivot where we start to talk about identity, which is actually something that we've talked to Nick Carter about previously. It's like, what is the identity of a Bitcoiner? Is she a Bitcoin maxi? And she she turned the conversation into the metaphor of uh, Dante's circles of hell. Like, what, <laughs> what circle of Bitcoinerism is melting in? Uh, and for what it's worth, I actually consider whatever, whatever circle it is, uh, Meltem and Nick are roughly in the same circle. Uh, they both understand the macro outside landscape and they are both uh, self-identify as Bitcoiners, um, but I wouldn't classify them as maxis. Yeah, and to be clear, Nick, uh, who's listening here off stage, we do not think this is a circle of hell that you're in with Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, just, uh, you know, just, just FYI there. Okay, and then we also have an episode with... Uh, Balaji Srinivasan coming out next Monday. Dude, I'm super excited about this. This was maybe our longest episode. I'm not sure if we fully edited it yet, but um, we're talking about the digital nation with Balaji. It's going to be, a, it's just a killer episode. You talk about a ball of energy. Balaji is just like a ball of like yeah. revolutionary ideas. Yep. And we got right into them and how they apply to crypto. So that's going to be super cool. Yeah, we often talk about the, the metaphor of the nation state as a crypto nation, like a digital nation on a Bitcoin, digital nation with Ethereum. Balaji is taking this a full step forward and making this much more concrete. And so that's basically what the podcast was about. Like, how, how can we literally make a nation out of this, out of this world? David, we've been promising uh, that we would publish some memes and we also published some pretty slick memes mm -hmm. uh, that that can be purchased. But I don't know. Um, we're going to talk about this in the second half. Mm -hmm. But like Ethereum hit its number, yep. right? We, we got staking up. Yep. Uh, Ethereum's going to launch the community on December 1st. Job. 
the community rallied together. The community did its job. Mm -hmm. We played a, a minor role in, in helping uh, on the meme propagation mm -hmm. layer. Mm -hmm. and it feels really good right now. It I know does. we'll get into that in the, in the second half of this, but uh, super excited about that. It's a good day to be an Ethereum. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, last thing to mention is, of course, this is uh, Thanksgiving week, Black Friday deals. Ledger is putting out probably the best deal I've seen mm -hmm. this year, where it's like 40% off ledgers. We will include a link in the show notes so you can get on that. I think it's good until this Friday. Mm -hmm. All right, David, I think that's what we have as far as announcements. Uh, why don't we get to the opening question that I ask you every week? Let's what is the state of the nation right now, David Hoffman. The state of the nation is triumphant. Not only did we get to, to the number of ether needed to depo deposit it into the smart contract to get the phase zero beacon chain up and rolling, but we absolutely crushed that number. Like the the uh, the acceleration curve of ether deposits just like went through the roof at the last possible uh, moment. But then it just like shot way beyond it. I think we're at something like 625,000 ETH in the deposit contract, which is just like, even if it didn't get to that point, like it was still going to be okay. But the fact that like, there's just this massive vote of confidence from the Ethereum community saying like, yes, let's get this ball rolling. We are ready to get this kickstarted. Let's bootstrap this network. We are all here together. Uh, this is a, there, there's no debate. There's, there's, there's only consensus. Uh, and we really, as a, as a community, we really seem to be moving as a, a complete a holistic unit and so that is something to be absolutely triumphant about and also at the same time the prices are ref ref uh, reflecting this triumphal triumphantness whatever triumph like <laughs> triumph name. triumph yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, it, it, everything just feels really proud and uh, things are being reflected as such all right, so Ethereans are feeling really good, but mm -hmm. before Nick Carter uh, thinks that this is a bait and switch, we're just going to talk about Ether the whole time. <laughs> I think the Bitcoin community is feeling super triumphant too, yep. wouldn't you say? I mean, like all-time high already mm -hmm. exceeded in market cap. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is quite clearly reaching institutional uh, mindshare. The mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal had Bitcoin price once again on the front page, mm -hmm. this like uh, illustrative boomer newspaper. It's coming back. Right. And uh, this time, Bitcoin does not seem like a tool for, for scammers and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and people trying to escape um, government controls. Mm -hmm. This time, it's, it's mainstream. Yep. The Bitcoin community, to me, has never, have, has never like, seemed more triumphant than, than mm -hmm. it is now. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I would agree that that would make sense. But I think if we also wanted to peel back the layers specifically into the Bitcoin versus Ethereum dynamics, which some Bitcoin maximalists spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, Bitcoin dominance is falling. And so Bitcoin as the dominant crypto store value asset is actually not currently something to be triumphant about. It is something to be triumphant about the total market cap and how the, the legacy world values Bitcoin and which are all the right reasons to be proud about Bitcoin. But if you're a Bitcoin maximalist who thinks that all other tokens are going to zero, you are not a happy camper right now. All right. Well, you just got a little bearish on Bitcoin for that moment, but now we will introduce Nick Carter. It's a pleasure to have him on. Nick is the general partner at Castle Islands Ventures. He is a co-founder of CoinMetrics, which is a fantastic crypto analytics firm that I use almost on a daily basis. And he also hosts the podcast on the brink. Nick, it is fantastic to have you today. Can you come in, talk to us a little bit about why this time it's different with, with Bitcoin and the, the numbers showing all time highs? 
Um, this time is different. I that might be a dangerous <laughs> thing to say, uh, but uh, thank you for having me on. Fifth time is this the fifth time? I think it's the fourth. I think it's the fourth. Fourth. Are you yeah, sure? Two podcasts, and then this is the second like state many. of the nation. Yeah, five is five would be too many. Uh, but I, I'm addicted to creating content. What can I say? It's, it's yeah. all I, it's all I can do these days. Mm-hmm. Well, you um, are you are moving right up. Um, you know, I know you got your start on Bankless here, Nick Carter. <laughs> But you are moving up to was it uh last week? Was it Bloomberg? Bloomberg, yeah. Okay. And you know, was... who 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 knows what might be in the future? CNBC, you know, lots of outlets. The 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 news networks need like a slightly younger generation of Bitcoiners to go and say sensible things about Bitcoin. You know, can't just they can't just have Novo on every time. That's no disrespect to Novo, but that's kind of one of the dis- things that's different about this bull market is like we have a new cohort of pundits, and I'm bullish on the new cohort of pundits that are being brought on to speak about Bitcoin, especially especially if it's you, Nick. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, I do think it's important to like let's get a slightly more diverse array of opinions around Bitcoin and crypto out there. Um, I don't know if mine are actually that unique necessarily, but uh, it was a, it was great. Well, um, you do a and, you do a Nirvana great game. job. You do a great job, Nick, like distilling all of those ideas. I think and like coalescing and collecting them and explaining them. Um, but like before you go into an interview with somebody like Bloomberg, do you have the voice of of maximalists in your head at all from the community who are like, Nick, you can't say this. This is off limits. <laughs> Or are you just totally open book and you just kind of speak your mind? Because it seemed like after the Bloomberg conversation, there was a little bit of a, a kerfuffle, I guess, on Twitter about yeah. something that you said. Can you talk about that? The buzzing of the cyber hornets is, <laughs> is buzzing in my brain. I mean, obviously, I know if I'm going to say something that offends the orthodox Bitcoiners. I mean, I, I, I think I said it uh, when Joe asked me about the halving. I was like, this is going to piss people off. And uh, what did it Joe totally did. Well, he was, <laughs> what did he say? He, he like goaded me into saying uh, the halving was priced in, uh, which he, he is right about, uh, by the way. Um, so, you know, the halving itself was obviously not a direct catalyst for Bitcoin. Say it again. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just so, it's so naive. And like, it's, it's such an intellectually impoverished opinion to have that like bitcoin supply schedule defines the trajectory of the bitcoin price Mm -hmm. because it's so so reductive it reduces this amazing rich multifaceted phenomenon to a single variable which is effectively fixed right um so it's weak it's just very weak like and people wrongly you know took that as me saying you know i'm not positive on the bitcoin price like Buddy, I'm as long Bitcoin as anybody. Okay, uh, for, you know, in, in multiple different ways. You You're know? wearing like, the shirt, right? That's the shirt. I have a Bitcoin hat, so like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm I'm long Bitcoin intellectually, like the actual asset itself, etc. So I'm very positive on it, just not because of some like inane supply-related metric, but for, in my opinion, what are better reasons. And here's the thing, like. I think being pro Bitcoin because of stock to flow or like having that's a very brittle thesis. Like if that's invalidated, then your whole worldview is shattered. Right. Mm -hmm. So you actually want to be long Bitcoin for reasons that make sense. 
so that you can be a good hodler, you know, like, so you don't just give up in a year or two if it doesn't hit like your arbitrary price thresholds. I know I'm not going to give up. And I think that's why, or perhaps um, uh, one of the motivations behind the article that we wanted to get you on to discuss the nine metrics that are at all time highs for Bitcoin, which to me are nine reasons to be bullish Bitcoin that are just not related to like the happening, right? They're, they're outside demand rather than intrinsic scarcity. Yeah, yeah, they're they're mostly demand side metrics, or they might have something to do with uh, financial infrastructure, um, or or even macro. But yeah, so this was the reason I wrote this article is to somewhat demystify, you know, our current rally, um, you know, and, and like cast a little bit of light on market structure. Um, you know, some of these things people don't pay that much attention to. So I wanted to say, look, there's like good, real, credible reasons why the bull, you know, has returned. By the way, before we get into the article, Nick, I just want to like finish off that discussion about Bloomberg. So like, um, you, you got some flack by a contingent of the Bitcoin community for breaking orthodox on something that I didn't even know was orthodox in Bitcoin culture, but like. What does that it shouldn't feel be. like? It shouldn't like, be. Does it does it piss you off, or is there still an element where you're like, well, you know, Bitcoin culture does need people with very strong opinions uh, in order to sort of forcify its social defense structure? Are you just like this pisses me off, and then like I'm angry about it? I mean, I I didn't catch your discussion with Meltem, so I don't know exactly what she said, but I think I understand the metaphor of like there being this like hardcore. You know, Cotter uh, of like really, you know, <laughs> like strong-willed holders that are the guardians of you know the the, the views mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and the social contract, and then you know it percolates out from there. But um, with stock to flow in particular, I just think it's a like a faulty opinion to hold. So it's just like, in my opinion, not a valid model. Uh, so it would be a big shame if that was somehow interwoven into you know the orthodox bitcoin doctrine because you know bitcoinism in my opinion should be more about like you know the political objectives of the system and not about some you know contrived about some you know contrived mathematical model stipulating that it um so it would be a big big shame if that was somehow interleaved into the most orthodox kind of set of core views all right. Well, so let's talk about um, some of the views that probably almost all Bitcoiners could share. And certainly we've seen this massive uh, price run up. Like you, you started the article by saying it's entirely plausible we could regain 20K level again, which um, I mean, it's it's quite a stunning ascent from what was the low on Bitcoin? We're like, 3, did, did we get... Did we get below 3,000 at all? Or it was 3,200 or so? Just above three, 3K on BitMEX, I think, yeah. Wow, and that was a year and a half ago? Something like that? I mean, yeah, I would say, oh, the low in, in 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really not long ago. But I mean, as recently as March, we were wicking down to the 3,500 range, which all right, is so, crazy to think about. So this like kind of marks the, the, the beginning of the bull market, I think, for Bitcoin. So... Can you talk about some of these charts and like, let's go through the data here and uh, tell us what's different or what's unique about this bull run or how we should view this bull run? I don't know where you want to start, but um, let's, let's yeah. start with the first up, one. Up um, addresses of $10, addresses that hold $10 worth of Bitcoin or more. Yeah, th 
It's one of my favorite charts, uh, any of these metrics of dispersion. And the point is, there's just more Bitcoiners today than there were in 2017. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of ways to get, you know, to apprehend this data. You could use a survey-based approach, which uh, the Cambridge study is pretty good, I think. And they look at uh, holders uh, on exchanges. And this is just kind of more of a directional approach. It's not really telling you with any precision how many Bitcoiners there are. That would be the wrong way to interpret this. But it just tells us directionally, look, Bitcoin's getting more distributed to smaller addresses. And of course, there's a number of different ways to get at this data. I could cut this data, you know, 20 different ways. But to me, this is just the purest uh, single expression of this dispersion. There's just more people that have heard about and own crypto today uh, as opposed to three years ago. So we have a more stable base. So this this number basically has to go up and to the right for Bitcoin to be successful, right? Like we have to yeah, see. Yeah, hundred percent. And so like, and this the fact that we are con- seeing it continue to do that, and especially do that really, really strongly in the twenty twenties, is just overall bullish. Yeah, and uh, I would encourage you to look at this data for Ethereum too. I'm sure you have. Mm. Um, Ethereum is showing that same dispersion. Which guess what? That's not the case for every. Uh, of right. every blockchain, uh, both of the the major forks of Bitcoin showed concentration, oh. and to me, concentration spells doom, right? Because it basically means like a lot of people sold their coins on exchanges, and whales bought up the coins. So you see the address, the UTXO set actually shrink, mm. and to me, that is a sign of morbidity. Right. You always want to, because we're talking about brand new monetary systems, you want to be distributing that to the entire world's population. Mm-hmm. So if it starts shrinking, you've, you've failed. You're in the first inning. You've already failed. So this is particularly important, a particularly important metric for those uh, crypto networks that are trying to become money or global right. money in any real sense. Undeniably, undeniably. And I've seen more attention on the dispersion metrics recently, but mm-hmm. in my view, they're absolutely critical. I think everybody should be looking at them. Totally agree. All right, let's move on to the second topic of open interest in the CME Bitcoin futures. Why is this a important metric to pay attention to, Nick? This is actually probably the most important metric in the entire article. Wow. Um, yeah. So the, the, the rally these days is characterized by participants that really, in some cases, can only participate in this market specifically. The CME is a market where if you're, you know, a large hedge fund or an asset manager or, you know, institution, as they say, you have likely already sort of done that counterparty risk analysis. There's no additional work that you need to do to get comfortable with this market, trading on this market. That's obviously not the case for any of these newer crypto exchanges where you have to do your diligence, you know, um, and you have to, you know, ascertain their, their trustworthiness. Uh, the CME is, you know, deeply intertwined into sort of established financial plumbing. Uh, so the cash settled futures product is really critical. Um, and the more open interest we see, that's indicative of a very certain type of market participant that in some cases is only able to trade on this specific market. Uh, so I gave the example of Rentec. That's where, you know, probably the most successful and lucrative hedge fund uh, in history uh, this was the one market that they uh, specifically said they would be able to take their positions on. A lot of these guys, a lot of these hedge fund guys, when they come out and say they're taking Bitcoin exposure, they're talking about the CME product. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of Bitcoiners will listen, will hear that and say, well, 
that's you know that's fake bitcoin and it doesn't affect the spot price but my response to that would be that the market makers that are trading on those exchanges are hedging their trades with spot bitcoin so i do believe that it does affect the spot price of bitcoin it would, you know there's like all these conspiracies a lot of gold bugs like to say you know paper paper gold you know is totally decoupled or even suppresses the price of spot gold um a lot of bitcoiners subscribe to that view as well but i i do think this is tremendously positive more liquidity uh, more open interest on this product uh, a few people complained to me that open interest is a bad metric uh but but whichever one you use to to look at it uh, whether it's contracts or open interest the number looks good it's it's more liquid than it's ever been so what's interesting is we've had a few other developments this year with like BitMEX being sort of shuttered where it seems like regulators are really trying to clean up this space has been almost a theme. We also had, uh, as you mentioned, Renaissance Technologies and uh, CME. We also had um, the BlackRock, uh, BlackRock CIO manage $8 trillion or so in assets said something crazy positive about Bitcoin that you would have never heard in 2017. Do you remember 2017 and Jamie Diamond was uh, big news? Rat Poison Squared. Was that when that yeah. came out? Yes. Like around that time, it was like, you know, folks like uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and Jamie Diamond. Um, but now this, this time around, it seems like the tables have turned and maybe it's partially because these institutions, well, now they could become uh, Bitcoin bag holders too, right? They could buy in. <laughs> they didn't have a way to buy in before, but now with the CME, they do. This product, you guys remember, this product launched on December 16th, 2017, yes. literally right. the precise top of the last market. Yeah. And some people attribute it to the collapse of that market, which is kind of plausible. Like you you finally, as a certain set of institutions had the ability to instrumentalize a short against Bitcoin, which mm -hmm. they couldn't do before. Totally plausible. Uh, or t December 17, I guess they launched. Um, so... Yeah, this is really important. As you say, like if you listen to some of the reasoning behind that BitMEX uh, indictment, it, they also talk about this notion of unfairness. The fact that there's offshore derivatives exchanges which can operate with less constraints or no constraints, and they can sort of outmaneuver these onshore exchanges which are regulated. And the regulators and the enforcement arms that sort of you know work on behalf of the US state, they want to uphold the validity of the US regulated uh, you know, capital market. And so one of the reasons they enforce is to maintain fairness and say, you know, you can't just go offshore and compete with our American regulated uh, exchanges. Um, and so I think that's actually part of the reason is that they, they want to inculcate this vibrant, uh, you know, local ecology of uh, of marketplaces and that's part of the reason why they go after the offshore exchanges for better or for worse mm -hmm. is to protect and maintain the competitiveness of the cmes and the cbos of the world and the bacts of the world and so on so because there's more volume happening on cme which is a is a u.s friendly uh institution what does that mean for the prospects of a bitcoin etf very very positive extremely positive that's probably the number one thing that the sec called out is they are interested in more and more bitcoin volume taking place at markets that are kind of u.s regulated with 
surveillance sharing agreements where the market structure is apprehensible to regulators. Mm -hmm. And it's not very cypherpunk of me to say, uh, obviously, but that's the specific thing that the SEC called out. Right. That's what they asked for. Wouldn't it be interesting if the uh, CME launch marked the top of the 2017 bull run and a Bitcoin ETF marks the top of this 2020 to 2021 bull run or just continues it <laughs> yeah i mean oh yeah the 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 first gold etf um i think gld that launched in 2004 that had a billion dollars of inflows in the first three trading days i think wow. we're gonna smash that record yeah with bitcoin wow. smash that record yeah Ryan, right you, well, you gotta keep your bullish hat on right okay Try, yeah, don't, okay. don't take it off. Okay. Yeah, can you yeah. tell that can you tell that I'm a little bullish and like fired up right now? <laughs> New paradigm. There are no pullbacks, right, David? That's no pullbacks. Exactly right. Just straight up, straight ascent. Up. Mm -hmm. All no right. Dips. Uh re realized capitalization. That's another metric that you've I think popularized. Uh Nick, can you talk about it? Yeah. So realized cap, it basically just measures the value of each individual coin at the time it last traded or settled on chain. So it's kind of a liquidity adjusted market cap. Uh, you can also see it as the aggregate cost basis of all holders. That's way, way above the 2017 highs. To me, this is a more pure uh, market relevant measure of, of um, capitalization than market cap is. Uh, what it shows to me is that, look, you know, Bitcoin cost, like people are storing more wealth in Bitcoin than ever. Their cost basis is higher than ever. People are buying Bitcoin at higher thresholds than ever. In, 20, in late 2017, we wicked up to these crazy levels and that was it. We weren't there for very long. There wasn't a lot of economic activity that happened at those levels. This tells us that we've been you know, having Bitcoin commerce at these high levels for much longer and for a much more sustained period. So we're way, way above the all-time high here. I've also heard this described as it's it's almost kind of a measure of the average um, Bitcoiner, basically their cost basis. So it's almost a measure of, of like the happiness of the average uh, Bitcoiner, right? So like this goes up yeah. and the average Bitcoiner is really happy because they just made a, that it just means they made a bunch of gains, right? So, and then what's the average Bitcoiner going to do? Um, tell her friends about Bitcoin and how awesome it is and how much money they made. And then that creates this feedback loop, right? Is that another way to look at it? Yeah, there's the flip side of that though. I mean, if price outpaces the realized price or if market cap outpaces realized cap too much, you know, and you can look, mm -hmm. obviously look at the ratio. It's, it's a great, reliable kind of top picker. Then people, it's an indication that people are gonna take profit most right. likely right. Um, if, if the ratio gets too significant. And so, it, I love it uh, for trading purposes. Uh, wow. it, to me, it's one of the purest uh, things that I've found in terms of ascertaining where you are in the market cycle. And so where does this indicate that we are in the in the market cycle from your reading of it? Midway through rally, but uh, by no means at Midway, the extremes huh? of uh, 2017. I think the, the ratio hit something like five or six in 2017. I think we're in the maybe the two range uh, right now. More wow, okay. room for growth. Awesome. Yeah. Keep, keeping the, the bullish hat on. <laughs> let's, let's keep that going. Uh, moving on to uh, the next one. Let's, uh, what is this? Bitcoin options open interest. Well, I'm personally going to need a definition for this one because this is outside of my area of expertise. I mean, th this is like among the least consequential uh, charts in the article, but uh, so we don't have to dwell on it necessarily. But yeah, options open interest is the nominal value of all the outstanding contracts. 
Uh, and as you can see, the, it's mostly Darabit mm. that we're talking about here. But really the point is here, options give you more creative ways to express your opinion uh, of the you know, price, direction, and volatility characteristics of an asset. And that just basically didn't exist before. You know, does, there wasn't really an options market. So, Does larger and it, larger open interest imply that more and more Bitcoins need to be held by the parties that are participating in this? Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm not an expert on options, so I don't necessarily have a good answer for you. Okay. Um, you, you mean like sort of as like a protocol sync kind yeah, of idea? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Really, the reason I included it was just that it shows that A, um, miners, for instance, have more um, concrete ways to potentially hedge their exposure should they want to. And I happen to know miners that are using options to hedge their exposure. And it, um, all of this was not available at all during 2017. Basically didn't exist. Basically didn't exist in size. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it just means that as a trader, you can engage with Bitcoin in a more creative way now. Right. This is a super cool one, Nick. Bitcoin price in the Turkish Lira. Why the Turkish Lira? I, I love Turks. I got many <laughs> Turkish friends. Um, but, you know, they're having a currency crisis. And guess what? The Bitcoin market in Turkey is booming. It's booming. There's a number of exchanges. BTC Turk is the biggest one. And of course, Bitcoin is well at an all-time high. Really, the point here is it doesn't really matter which sovereign currency you look at it at, you know, in, in, in which terms. Like, could be the Turkish lira, could be the, uh, you know, Brazilian real. Uh, could be the Nigerian Naira, the Argent, any of these kind of weaker currencies, Bitcoin is already well past its mm -hmm. all-time high. And we have this dollar bias because we denominate our lives in dollars. But that's actually not the case for most people worldwide. They have forced to use these more inflationary currencies. So let's just sit back and remember mm -hmm. that these hard monies, they look extra good when you denominate them in extremely soft monies. Like the dollar is one of the strongest sovereign currencies but there's so many other currencies worldwide that are super inflationary and where are most people in like a turkey getting their bitcoin is it something like local bitcoin or are there um exchanges no they have full uh sophisticated order book uh exchanges in turkey so they're they're well provisioned from an exchange perspective Speak. it's also a country where there's like a cultural affinity for gold mm. and i think one rubric or heuristic you could use would be it's kind of easier for the for individuals living in those places who are used to storing value outside of the state or the bank system to make their peace with a new thing like bitcoin speaking of turks that we all know and love meltem is in the uh, chat saying that uh, btc turk was the second ever bitcoin exchange so uh, hi meltem and thanks for the info <laughs> shout out btc turk let's go so to, no, to no. me, to me, the, the Turkish, like you just said, is just like this representative of uh, other other currencies, which there seems to be just a, a, the, the metaphor that I've gotten from from uh, Bitcoiners is like 
Bitcoin is the apex predator of currencies. And so Bitcoin is just working its way up the the line of weaker and weaker currencies and it's gobbling up each one, right? Like the last one in line is just eats that one and then eats the next one and it's just working its way up to the to the final boss, which is like the dollar, right? The dollar is the one like leading the, the charge. So it, it is, uh, there's like this fiat herd of, of wildebeest and Bitcoin is is picking Eating off the, the, the weakest weak ones as they go. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly ones. Right. Yep. Totally correct, okay. totally correct. And here's the twist on that. Bitcoin helps the dollar predate on the other currencies, by mm-hmm. the way, mm-hmm. you know, like not just Bitcoin, but crypto infrastructure. We've all seen this. Crypto infrastructure is proliferating dollars around the globe. We're seeing yeah. these, you know, digital crypto dollarization, whatever you want to call it, aggressively predating on these weaker sovereign currencies. My guess is that it's because of crypto infrastructure, not even necessarily the existence of Bitcoin. I know that's heresy as well. It's because of, you know, like public settlements infrastructure allowing dollars to proliferate globally that kills off a lot of these weaker currencies. All right, us. Nick, do you have time for a quick side quest, quick detour? Because this is, this, I see, think this is on point. There we go. Relevant. All right, quick, quick side quest, right? So Circle partnered with um, the uh, Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. This is Jeremy and crew who basically Circle has a USDC and they are providing, it, it, this is almost like a, um, like political action, wouldn't you say? Like because they are arming the um, a dissident government government in Venezuela <laughs> with USDC stablecoin in order to circumvent capital controls. Is that what's going on here? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, so what happened was the Maduro regime had some funds that were seized by, I believe, the Treasury seized them, and then you know, in the eyes of the U.S. establishment here, Juan Guaido is the legitimate president of Venezuela, and Maduro is actually a pretender to the throne, even though he has de facto power. And uh, so that's that's the U.S.'s attitude to this whole thing. And so they didn't see anything wrong with, you know, uh, appropriating the uh, Venezuelan account that they could sort of get access to in the U.S. banking system. Because in their view, Guaido was sort of the legitimate president and Maduro was the pretender. So um, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, whether you consider this to be theft or sort of a rightful return of capital to where it should be. But so what's happening is that, you know, the U.S. said, OK, Guaido, you can here's your budget. You know, these are um, these are funds that kind of belong to your government. And his move was to try and distribute them to eight, um, medical workers in Venezuela directly using uh, AirTM, which is kind of a fintech app, which is dollar denominated. I had Ruben Galindo on my podcast, quick little plug, uh, if you want to learn about this uh, in detail. Um, And uh, so that's what's happening here. So it certainly is, you could maybe discuss it as slightly imperialistic or interventionist, um, but honestly, uh, Venezuela is undergoing this dollarization anyway. In fact, the Maduro regime is in favor of the dollarization of Venezuela, because it's kind of a palliative measure. It's making the local population less angry with the regime, the fact that they can dollarize. So they decriminalize dollar ownership this year. So, you know, there's as much of a pull as there is a push happening. And it's interesting, it's using crypto rails. So this is USDC, this is not, um, you know, US foreign policy intervention through the use of the SWIFT system 
for yeah. example. This is like the first time it's being done through a stable coin. Well, there's a last mile delivery problem, right? Because, you know, people, there's no real market to spend USDC in Venezuela right now. Um, so they still face the challenge of getting USDC liquidity into Bolivars, which still exist, or uh, into actual physical dollars. Really, Venezuela dollarized with physical dollars. You know, like remember those things? Yeah, uh, we used to I use them I've before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's probably about two billion dollars worth of physical dollars circulating in Venezuela. That's how they initially dollarized. Then it got more complicated. They used Zelle, a lot of Zelle. Um, but the problem is that Zelle is kind of powered by banks like Wells Fargo and there's no sanctions on Venezuela, the whole country, but there are sanctions on members of the kind of regime, the elites. And if you have, if you're unlucky enough to have sort of, you know, maybe your uncle went to the coffee shop that's run by the nephew of the minister of transport or something. And then, you know, he sends you a birthday gift. You might've become tainted by association in the, in the transactional graph, kind of like Chainalysis taint that idea. So because of that, Venezuelans are constantly getting deplatformed from Zelle, from all these fintech apps. So you see there's an obvious case to be made for the usage of stable coins or fintechs that are built on stable coins. Really fascinating sandbox environment. But yeah, you, you do need to kind of close that loop a little bit and get local merchants to accept USDC if you want this to like fully work. It, uh, super fascinating. Also interesting because I, st I, I feel like um, there's something about that that was bullish crypto rails, right? Mm -hmm. But also like bullish non-sovereign currencies that are credibly neutral, like a Bitcoin, or we would argue an Ether and maybe some element of DAI because um, from like Venezuela's perspective from the, um, the anti-US regime, right? their funds were essentially confiscated and there's it's the same old problem of swift where they're being kind of locked out of the existing system right so us's ability to exert some sort of uh control over something like a usdc where they can they have an, a centralized apparatus where they can exert that kind of control um also makes space for the presence of a of a non-sovereign uncontrollable neutral currency like a bitcoin or an ether I recently wrote a op-ed in, in CoinDesk saying, um, you know, the U.S. should embrace crypto dollars because the alternative is the emergence of much less accountable forms of crypto dollars, like Dai, for instance. Yeah. Um, and so they should embrace the somewhat, you know, fairly neutral kind of stablecoin infrastructure um, and surrender their control over the system that they exert with SWIFT. Uh, because the alternative is much worse for them. It means that they have no control over the financial system if we go fully hashtag bankless. Yeah, I, that would make sense if you were the US government. Hashtag bankless. Hashtag. Uh, tweet it out. Okay. Bitcoin held by Grayscale. This is, um, we had Mike, Michael Sonnenschein on um, a couple of weeks ago, and then we played the episode like two weeks later mm -hmm. and we had to change the titles because at first we started at like <laughs> there's 6 billion in grayscale. Mm -hmm. And by the time we actually shipped the episode, there's like over 10 billion yeah. in grayscale. So this is blowing up, right? Yeah. And, and this chart's a little um, maybe cheating to use this one because it only goes up by <laughs> definition. It cannot go down. Right. If right. You, you know, so Melton pointed this out on her podcast, I think what grinds my gears uh, GBDC is a black hole 
of Bitcoins or, you know, the, the equivalent for Ethereum as well. You can't get them out. You can only put them in. So it's the most unbelievable phenomenon really ever, I think, uh, is it's that it's just sucking all this liquidity in. And the only way it gets out is if, you know, they wind it up and there's an ETF maybe, and then they go into global settlement or something. Mm-hmm. But really that is the prospect isn't even described in the documents as far as I understand it. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the grayscale is is absorbing so many Bitcoins right now. It's preposterous. And some people say, well, that's because hedge funds are creating all the units of the trust to do this arbitrage play. But the reason that the arbitrage play is profitable is because there are There's investors the on these brokerages bidding up the financialized Bitcoin product. So that's the reason the ARB works, because there's still that sustained bid pressure on the exchanges. Nick, I I remember hearing, I think in one of your weekly recaps recently, where you uh, noticed how Bitcoin tends to pump during business hours and how that was associated with Grayscale. Can you talk about that connection? Because we just watched Bitcoin Um, pump from like 18,500 to- Sorry, guys. I I just lost you. Um, I just lost the audio. Oh, you can't hear us? Sounds like you can't hear us. He can't hear us. That's weird. We can talk amongst ourselves, David. Yeah. Okay. okay well, I'm back. Okay. I'm back. Sorry. My, my <laughs> no headphones just flipped to my phone. So I was, uh, I had been listening to one of your weekly recaps, re- weekly roundups with Matt Walsh on, on uh, the On The Brink podcast. And, and you talked about how Bitcoin tends to pump during business hours, which is actually exactly what we've seen this morning, where Bitcoin jumped from 18,000 and a half to like 19,200. And you associated that with Grayscale. Why, why are you associating this with Grayscale? I might be wrong to do that, honestly. Um, you know, maybe they are running their operations on the weekend or outside of business hours. But my guess is that either Grayscale or um, any of these institutions that are intermediating Bitcoin custody brokerage for, you know, those institutional clientele, the NIDIGs of the worlds, the Fidelity Digital Assets of the worlds. Um, I don't have precise knowledge of their operations, but my guess is that those U.S.-based, more institutional in nature organizations are more likely to be active during U.S. trading hours. And the seasonality bears this out. I mean, I looked at it on SKU yesterday. You have strong return profile during weekdays, and you've the absence of those returns on weekends. And the strongest returns in the last few months have been U.S. trading hours. So in my view, that's consistent with the existence of a bid during banking hours. Um, when when those markets can really clear. So so Nick, one thing that that keeps on I think surfacing as we're going through these metrics is this departure from the twenty seven the difference between the twenty seventeen bull market and the twenty twenty bull market that we've seen so far that you've described as in maybe the the first half right maybe the midway point maybe not even the midway point and that theme is um, institutions like we're talking about the CME. We are talking about this robust options activity. We're talking about Bitcoin holdings and grayscale trust. I mean, these are all institutions. It feels like like none of that infrastructure was available in 2017. Now it is. We're seeing it all go up and to the right, essentially. Is it is the bull run that we've seen thus far a result of the institutions coming are here? And uh, has retail not yet arrived yet? Or is retail taking cut of this first who's leading this bull market is it different 
Yeah, I would just say the capacity is very, very much enhanced. And that just broadens the you know addressable set of entities that can get exposure to the asset class. Now, you know, we talk about institutions, you know, pension funds, endowments, um, you know, like it, it, it's kind of a squishy term a little bit. Uh, we know anecdotally that, um, you know, sovereign wealth funds, we know that they have exposure to the crypto industry or a handful of them do in certain ways. Some of them through the venture vehicle, uh, through, you know, some of those larger venture funds, some of them through startup exposure, um, you know, they're getting exposure in a variety of ways. I would say, honestly, probably the biggest change though would just be the social acceptability of having a long position in Bitcoin among high net worth individuals and family offices. Um, you know, people on Wall Street, they obviously didn't want to be involved in a like a retail kind of clown show in 2017, which was ICO driven and hype driven. Nobody wants to buy the top from retail investors, right? Absolutely nobody wants to do that. But this time around, you know, those people have had time to think about it and devise an investment thesis. There's macroeconomic tailwinds, which are incredibly real this time around. They weren't really present in 2017. So it's just become much more acceptable to have a Bitcoin position as, you know, this, you know, as a Wall Streeter or a billionaire, you know, or a dissident in Russia and you're trying to offshore your wealth. I mean, all these people now, the, the, just the general atmosphere around exposure to Bitcoin and crypto has changed. Uh, and obviously the plumbing is better. So you can actually get that exposure if you want it now. You don't have to mess around with a ledger or anything. So, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's, you know, there's maybe a little bit more to it than, than just like the institutions are finally here. You know, it, it, it just sort of depends. But basically the industry can finally actually absorb capital uh, from a variety of participants in a way that it just fundamentally could not do in 2017. Wow. Yeah, that's a huge change. Yep. All right. Um, stablecoin free float. There, there's a few more. We've got stablecoin free float. We've got, um, what else? Oh, uh, Silvergate, Silvergate Settlement, Network. Settlement Network layer, which is interesting. And then what else do we have? The growth um, of crypto native credit. Yeah, which which are the most in, what's the most interesting thing to talk about of those three, Nick? Which would you like to dive into? Up to you. They're all very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had a kind of a contrarian take on the credit. I know a lot of Bitcoiners don't like banking. I was trying to say the credit. If you look at where these lenders are lending to, and you know we invest in lenders, right? Mm-hmm. So we have pretty direct understanding of this market. The, they, the consumers of this credit are arbitrage firms, market-making firms, trading firms. A lot of these firms make markets. They're the reason that these pairs are tight. You know, the mm-hmm. spreads are, are thin and, or, or, you know, that markets are liquid. So the incredibly liquid and integrated, you know, and like sort of no arbitrage markets that exist in, in crypto exist partly because there's so much credit outstanding because the cost of capital has decreased in the industry. So, and that's a great feature, right? You want the, the markets to be incredibly liquid. So we have the lenders to thank for that. That was the point I was making here. Well, but this is huge, right? So this is like, we, we didn't have any of this. Again, this is another thing we didn't have any of in 2017. There was no such thing as BlockFi for retail. Genesis from a lending perspective was just getting started. And to be clear guys, what, what Nick is talking about is um, crypto 
Bitcoin in this case, collateralized loans, basically, where you can you know, deposit your Bitcoin and then you can take a loan against the value of that Bitcoin. And that market has just totally exploded. And I think Genesis is, is certainly one of the, the leaders of that. So w- where do you see that, I guess, developing moving, moving forward in this, in this bull run, Nick? I think we're going to see the largest deposit-taking institutions Coinbase is the world, all those exchanges realize that their destiny is to become a bank. So right now they're banks in the sense of, I will custody your gold coins for you and then give you back those same coins, right? Mm -hmm. But in the near future, they're going to become banks in the sense that they will give you the option to have an interest-bearing account and they will put your assets to work for you and create credit uh, the same way that commercial banks do. And uh, I can see you shaking your head because this isn't very bankless. This is bank full, you know, <laughs> which is is the wrong direction. Well, I think be, you've but... I think you've got an interesting slant on that where you talk about how uh, Bitcoin specifically enables a much more auditable trail here. But but like let's talk about banks for 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 a minute in the next evolution, right? So first they're starting with these collateralized loans, uh, loans, but at, at some point. Banking, they love to make fractional types of reserve products, right? That's how they. Yeah, increase I mean margins. the banking. Um, the banking I'm referring to is, is is not Lombard loans, but specifically standard commercial banking, um, where with you know credit creation, where. So you think you know, that's coming? That's coming then. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, wow. there's there's nothing which really stands in its way, um, and of course, you know, exchanges will probably give their depositors the option to have a full reserve account. So you'll sort of have the option, full reserve, not interest bearing, fractional reserve, interest bearing. Mm. Um, but y- there will be an explosion of credit, you know, simply because if you actually look at the yields um, in, in the crypto industry, the interest rates are kind of structurally high. And so there's clearly an under provisioning of credit, even though this chart is up and to the right, there's not enough credit being created in the crypto industry. There's a structural high demand for credit. Someone's going to satisfy that demand. My guess is that one of the major exchanges starts to turn on interest-bearing accounts kind of in the near future. That would be interesting. I do want to touch on the stablecoin supply because that's uh, highly relevant to both Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I think right now there's roughly, there's perhaps even at this point, over $25 billion in stablecoins out there. And maybe I think we had like three or four billion in Tether at the peak of 2017. And so not only less, is there less than that, less, yeah, not only yeah. is there just straight up more stable coins, there's also more kinds and they're spread across the ecosystem. Well, that's actually not totally true. There's like three billion on Tron and I think the rest is on Ethereum. Uh, so, so Nick, when you see just a massive supply of stable coins out there, what does that tell you about the nature of this particular bull run? So the one thing as it pertains to Bitcoin is that Bitcoin was the, uh, it was the kind of quote currency for exchanges, right? And it was the default currency pair for all crypto exchanges, kind of long tail altcoin exchanges, derivatives exchanges. And that changed in the last year. I think you guys have pointed out too. These exchanges became largely tetherized. Tether became the default collateral. It became the default pair that things were traded against. And... So what that will have done is that will have removed some of the structural kind of reservation demand for Bitcoin. 
So, you know, you think about crypto exchanges as being a sink that Bitcoin, you know, falls into if it's the default asset that was eliminated largely. And then Tether became the default pair. So despite that, the Bitcoin is now trading back at its all-time highs, means it's trading more on the basis of being kind of a pure macro asset as opposed to being, you know, like a, uh, a reserve currency for the crypto industry. Mm-hmm. So that's a very positive thing in my view is that, you know, Bitcoin is largely eliminated from that reserve asset use case. Tether kind of replaced it, USDC as well. Um, and so it's impressive that it was able to sort of recover from that loss of a major use case. Um, and then as for just the, you know, I think w- what this allows us to do is just reason more carefully about what we use these things for. It's clearly stable coins are the default uh, MOE in the crypto industry. They're what people use to transact with. And then Ether and Bitcoin, people are using more as like the base collateral in these systems. I think that really clarifies what they're for. And, you know, we don't have to smash together all these different features or try and use, uh, I mean, you, maybe you guys disagree with this, but I don't think that we have to force a square peg into a round hole anymore and trying to believe in retail Bitcoin is this like payments asset, which is really not suited for. Um, so the stable coins as a cohort have taken over that activity. Um, the other interesting thing is that stable coins have a mutualistic relationship, I think with, I, I, I know I, I've heard for you, your newsletter that it might be parasitic, but my view currently is that it's highly mutualistic with stable coins and crypto native, uh, crypto native assets. Uh, because the stable coins need something to trade against, something that's liability free. And if there's ever a run on Tether, what, did, what are they going to sell it for? They're going to sell it for the most liquid cryptocurrencies because you know those can't be confiscated. If there's a, a worry that your stable coins can be freezed or confiscated, frozen or confiscated, you'll just trade it in for the most liquid crypto pairs. Yeah. So. I think that take could be right on, right? Because as, as you said, there's always the concern or the fear that the uh, birth of stable coins could lead to the demonetization of uh, something, it's crypto native assets like a Bitcoin or uh, an Ether. But, but, but really what it seem, seems to be um, happening is it's really totally killing the use case of 2017. I mean, part of the 2017 ICO fervor was these futility coins where any coin can be a currency and therefore have a monetary premium associated with it. I think the 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 success of stablecoins completely slaughters that 2017 like that was the lazy fat protocol thesis if you will, right? Like all we have to do is we'll create a protocol and then we'll create this medium of exchange and we, we've got our own currency and bam, we've got a valuation to compare with ether or bitcoin, right? Well, like no, just use just use USDC right. in in DeFi, right? You don't need that. Yeah. So it does, it, it does, I guess, almost like act as a, an apex predator in the crypto ecosystem in that it like eats these tokens that aren't a Bitcoin or an Ether and can't uh, rise above and create this monetary premium. It just eats all of those other imposters. It, it makes them more honest. You know, these payment yes. tokens, if you're selling something as a payment token, you're going to be, you know, my challenge to you is, are you going to outperform a stable coin in terms of your, your qualities and your transactional usage? 
This puts a gigantic hole in the Ripple story, by the way. Yep. Yes. No one what? <laughs> yeah. Gaping, gaping chasm in the Ripple story. Ripple's a bridge asset. That never happened. But right. guess what is a bridge currency? Stable coins, 100,000%. Right. All right. Last question for you, Nick. Why is Ripple going up right now then? <laughs> Ripple's really popular in, uh, you know, in like Japan and Korea. Um, oh God! I don't, I don't necessarily have a ton of color. It could also be that people think um, the next administration is going to be favorable towards Ripple. That's plausible. Hmm. Ripple invested a ton of money and energy in lobbying for good outcomes in DC. Oh Maybe what's being repriced right now is their prospects of getting, uh, avoiding the security monitor moniker and being called a commodity. So that is one theory that I have to explain the price action. And it changes nothing about the overall fundamentals of the project. Yeah, virtually no usage as a bridge currency. Yeah. Obviously just use stable coins instead. Yep, that's exactly right. Nick, thank you so much for putting the work into this article and then also coming on to share it with the Bankless Nation. Uh, I'm particularly bullish, but again, looking at all of this data, uh, it's nice to have the data to back up the bullishness. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you for having me back. It's always thank- fun. Thanks a lot. We'll do number five pretty soon here, Nick. <laughs> Guys, hang with us. We're going to do a quick sponsor break, and then Dave and I will be right back with you to talk about the ETH side of the equation, the bull market that's happening there. Stay tuned. Hey guys, the next sponsor is Ledger and Ledger is running a 40% off Black Friday week sale. So if you haven't gotten your Ledger yet, you are in luck for the week of the 23rd through the 30th, you can get 40% off of all Ledgers on the Ledger website. So if you are still using a hot wallet or you're just looking to get a backup, maybe for a multi-sig or just for some more redundancy, now is the time to go get that ledger. There's a link in the show notes that can get you that 40% off Black Friday deal. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a hardware wallet. There is no alternative for storing your crypto in a self-sovereign fashion. That's why I have four ledgers that I use to manage my different crypto assets using the Ledger Live account as well. Ledger Live is like your home base for managing your Ethereum, DeFi, and crypto accounts. It does a really good job of aggregating all of your different Ethereum wallets if you are the type of person that uses more than one. But you can also add other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Cosmos or whatever your preferred blockchain is. And then it will display an aggregate portfolio of all your accounts at the main page. One thing that Ledger is doing a really good job of is enabling all the money verbs that me and Ryan talk about with the Bankless Skill Cube enabled in the Ledger Live app. So right now in the Ledger Live app, you can buy, sell, lend, swap, and stake your crypto assets, which is doing a really good job of fulfilling all of the money verbs in the Bankless Skill Cube. Something that's new to Ledger Live is Ledger Swap, where you can swap assets one for another directly inside the Ledger Live application, ensuring trustlessness in your financial activity on Ethereum and on Bitcoin. If you want to learn more about what you can do with a Ledger, go to the blog post, The Power of Ledger Live on the Ledger website, where they share some of the more advanced things that you can do with your Ledger that you might not have known about. There's a link in the show notes that will take you to the Ledger shop where you can get your preferred Ledger hardware wallets. I personally like the Ledger Nano X, but I also have both. They're both great options. When you own a Ledger, you own your own assets in the way that they have been designed to be held by the user and the user alone. So go get your Ledger today to make sure that you are as self-sovereign as possible. 
The bankless state of the nations are brought to you by Wire. Wiren is DeFi's first self-building community-run project, which I just get really, really excited about. Wiren is a system that seeks out yield in DeFi, and it does that in a number of different ways. Uh, a very aggressive way is with the vaults, where you can deposit your preferred asset of choice, and different DeFi experts will come in and generate a strategy for what to do with your deposited token, right? And so it'll go find ways to get yield in that deposited token in DeFi. For those who want to just earn yield on their stablecoins, the earn system is for you, where you can deposit your preferred stablecoin and Wiren will go and figure out which money market on DeFi in DeFi is producing the best interest rate, whether it's DYDX, Compound, or Aave. It, it looks around DeFi to see where the yield is coming from and it directs stablecoins automatically so you don't have to. Check them out at yearn.finance to get started and also check out the stats page to see what other people are doing as well. All right, Bankless Nation, welcome back. It's not only Bitcoin that is in full send. beast mode. Full send. It's full send. It's also Ether that has gone full send mm -hmm. as well. David and I are here to talk about this. David, let's start with that number. 524,288 ETH. Right. What is the significance of that number? That is the number of Ether that we needed it to have gotten deposited into the deposit contract last night. Uh, and uh, we absolutely blew that number out of the water. We were talking a while ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, I guesstimated like 85% chance probability that we'd make it. You said 95% chance. The fact that we exceeded that number by like 25% more ether than what was needed, it probably makes me think that the probability was even higher than 95%. David, I felt a little nervous. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. The uh, the last uh, probably maybe like three days before or so, mm -hmm. because look, when you put, when you've got a reputation like we have, David, which is <laughs> absolutely stellar and you put guesses, sparkly, <laughs> sparkly um, like indisputed basically, mm -hmm. and you put percentages of 80% probability or like 95% right. probability, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and you're wrong. Yeah. It doesn't feel great, That's right? A that's a it's scar. a scar and it looked like uh things weren't happening things were as quickly as we slow. thought Real well, slow. well you, even when we had eric connor on mm -hmm. it was funny because we had eric connor on we we're talking about like uh patriotic duty to stake and this mm -hmm. sort of thing and uh eric connor like leads ether i mm -hmm. think and even he was like well guys it only makes state it only makes sense from like from a pragmatic investor mm -hmm. perspective if you're making the returns mm -hmm. but the funny thing about it was um eric Eric's tweet like two days ago was basically like, oh, change of plans. I've gone into staking. Like I'm doing this for real. Forget mm -hmm. yield farmings. And he stepped up as well right. in a big way. And I think many in the Ethereum community did. And this is just the Ethereum community delivering. That's right. what makes me more bullish than the actual numbers here. It's like the community came together collectively mm -hmm. to go accomplish something. And not only did it do it technically, but it did it socially in getting this contract funded. And now we have ETH2, December 1st, 2020. Mm -hmm. That is going to be the launch date for this new internet bond. Right. And it's super bullish. Yeah, and you know what I think happened is like the deposits ticked up slowly, right? And it was, if, if it ticked up at the rate that it started to, and if it continued that, it was totally gonna miss, we weren't gonna get there. Um, but as that happened, 
the spots to fill became more scarce, right? Because if you're not in the deposit contract by the time the deadline hits, then you are got to wait in line, right? So I think all of a sudden people like saw that first it started going slowly and then it ticked up a little bit in speed, still wasn't enough. But then it just like burst because the FOMO kicked in. Like FOMO yeah. of being part of ETH2 kicked in and it kicked in really, really hard. Um, so like I said in the in the intro to this uh, to the show, like just a massive vote of confidence to how strongly the community is rallying behind like the desires for ETH2. Like there's a lot of external FUD coming, like especially coming from like Bitcoiners who are like, do the, do does the Ethereum community even want Ethereum 2? Like how do the <laughs> Ethereum developers even know that like Ethereum 2.0 is interesting to the Ethereum community, which to me is just like a total disconnect from reality. But if there was any debate about what the Ethereum community wants, let, like look at the numbers. Like we, we want ETH2. We want it. We want it really We bad. want ETH2. Absolutely. All right. So he, here's something else I think um, that kind of combats the foot and is basically a, uh, a headwind going into the bull run for Ethereum. Over the last, I don't know, three years, this whole bear market, the narrative has spread that ETH2 will never ship. Right. It cannot ship. Mm -hmm. ETH is too slow. Every single Ethereum killer, uh, so-called, mm -hmm. started with this premise mm -hmm. that basically we can develop, Ethereum is a great idea, but we can develop faster mm -hmm. than Ethereum. We can do ETH2 uh, better and faster than Ethereum can. Yes. Into, uh, you know, hundreds of million dollars of like projects mm -hmm. were based on this entire, on Billions. this entire premise. EOS, like, yeah. billion dollar ICO. Right. Yeah. That ETH would, would never ship, uh -huh. would never be able to conquer Definity, this. So near, like Polkadot. Like how many yeah. do we want to list? All of They're them. They're still out there. They're yeah. still out there. So, and then what happened? It shipped. Mm -hmm. It shipped. Oops. And not only did it ship, like I, this is not the entire like ETH2 vision, the Serenity vision, but the hardest part, like talk mm -hmm. to right. Justin Drake, right. talk to Danny Ryan, who we talked to, talk to Vitalik. Mm -hmm. They will all tell you that this phase zero mm -hmm. is the absolute hardest part to get right because this is the... Danny called it the heartbeat or like the brain of the operation. This is the consensus mm -hmm. layer right here. And this is the launch of staking. So when you get that right, I'm not saying, you know, the next phases just fall into place magically. It'll still take some time, mm -hmm. but this was the big thing for the ETH community to overcome. Yep. And we've overcome. Now it hasn't launched yet. So December 1st is another milestone here, but uh, we've, we've got a date now and now the smart contracts are in charge. So that's, <laughs> That's what dictates what's going to happen next. Yeah, the the ETH2 will never ship. Like all of a sudden, if you are still saying that, like you have a, so much responsibility to prove that statement. Like right now, the default position is that ETH2 is shipping, right? And the market is starting to price that in, right? There okay, was, tell me about price, David. Yeah, <laughs> hang on, we're gonna, get there. we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. We can't talk about price yet because there's so many things to talk about. <laughs> as to why the price is doing the thing that it's doing right now. One of them is just the removal of execution risk of Ethereum 2.0, right? Like that's that's a huge thing. So there's, there's no way like people can can still be legitimately saying that ETH2 will never ship uh, unless you have some sort of crazy knowledge that the rest of us don't have. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely going to start ship. It's I mean, it's it's already out there. So they they can't say yeah. that. Yep. Like where do you want to start with this then? I, the, I, David, I want to start with this. And so in 2017, the bull market had this underpinning of like, dude, we're going to be able to stake ether like in 6 months, right? In 2018. Yeah. It's coming in 2018. Uh, and Is so, that what like, you thought? That's what I thought. I was stacking my ether in order to prepare for staking. Uh, and so I like, was too. Now yeah, right? And then and then it never came. 
right? And then like the bull market kind of ended. Uh, the ICOs are not a very good mechanism to capture value over the long term. They're very fleeting. If ICOs stop making people money, then people are going to leave. And that's exactly what happened. And staking didn't come in order to absorb that capital soon enough, right? Like staking is coming like in, in like seven days. Like we missed that mark by roughly three years, like whoops. Um, but the whole underpinning of the bull market was by the prospect of staking ETH and getting a return and Ether scarcity as a result of that. And that that was happening towards the tail end of 2017 bull run. Like that was at the end of the bull run. Now staking is here really at the, even before the bull run for 2020 is really getting started. Like to me, the price action now is just a return to, to the norm, a return to fair values. Bull markets always happen when we shoot above and beyond that. But to me, like staking is happening before retail rather than after retail, but before people flood in, not afters. And so like the whole like genesis and development of Ethereum 2, all of the energy and capital and attention that got devoted to Ethereum killers back in 2017 and 2018, that's not going to exist. That's just going to exist on to Ethereum. That capital and energy is going to be directed towards Ethereum about the excitement of Ethereum 2.0. And instead of trying to fund your average Ethereum killer, it's much more likely that that capital gets deployed to trying to build some sort of crazy awesome application on Ethereum. That's just a much more likely outcome in my eyes. And we're already seeing it absorb capital. You know, I tweeted this out. Let me uh, let me share this with you, David, because this is uh, super cool. I think mm -hmm. so. Um, one way to look at how much capital staking has absorbed is to look at sort of um, like we've called it the internet bond in the bond market. And if you look at the domestic bond market of other nations, and you like mm -hmm. chart all of the nations and how much much in terms of bonds mm -hmm. they've issued. Uh, Ether right now at launch will be somewhere between El Salvador and Venezuela in size. Mm -hmm. So if you plot it on kind of nations, it is number 145 with a $314 million bond market. Actually, plus. I just, so just re-ran the numbers because the numbers in the deposit contract have gone up and Ether price has gone up. We are now at $390 million in the okay. market cap of deposits. Well, you know what? Then we just pa passed St. Lucia. And we're right behind. Apex we're trailing of bond markets, today, baby. <laughs> working our way up the line. We're trailing Uzbekistan. Okay, so now we're at uh, 143. <laughs> Not too bad. Uh, so th th this is what I mean. Of course, the the non-sovereign bond market is absolutely massive. We've estimated mm -hmm. it like 57 trillion right. with a T inside. And of course, the big apex predator in the in the bond market is uh, Treasuries, the old mm -hmm. T bills. That's, that's number one. But this is another interesting way of looking at the capital absorption of it. And David, there's another thing that wasn't present in 2017, and that is this. DeFi. DeFi. All it was it. Just, a, just a glimmer. I mean, like you saw a hint of it. I, I, I always argue that the 2017 ICOs were a form of DeFi, right? It was permissionless fundraising, a primitive. And it was very primitive in that sense of the word too, because um, like there, there, there wasn't sufficient alignment between investors and uh, stakeholders, right? Mm -hmm. um, that was just the start of DeFi. Now we have a robust DeFi ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So what will that do, do you think, as a headwind going into the bull market? 
Yeah, and in stark contrast to the 2017 ICO mania, like I said, the capital going into Ethereum that was the thing that pumped Ether to $1,400, that capital was fleeting. People didn't give a flying fuck about what Ethereum was or about bankless values or about self-sovereign money management. They saw ICO's number go up and they wanted to play the game. And when it became obvious that the game was like wrapping up and coming to a close and that people were making less money than they were making more money, then people left, right? It was, there was nothing sticky about Ethereum, right? There's no reason to hold your capital there. Again, MakerDAO wasn't uh, created until December of 2017. And even in December of 2017, it had like a couple million dollars worth of ETH in it. DeFi as a term wasn't even coined until the middle of uh, 2018. And then we kind of retroactively said that like, okay, well, DeFi kind of started with MakerDAO, which means it started in basically the last two weeks of 2017. So we can call it, it started in 2018. Ethereum hasn't had a place to deposit capital and have it be sticky in any bull market ever, right? Ever. And so like the whole, and like Uniswap has never seen a bull market and Uniswap has, is, as an application on Ethereum is one of the applications that locks up the most amount of value. Same thing with MakerDAO. Like right now there is 2.75 billion in MakerDAO. There's 1.7 billion in, in Compound, 1.5 billion in Aave, 1.3 billion in Uniswap, half a billion in Balancer, half a billion in Synthetics, 0.8 billion in, in Wiren. Nexus is up there as well. We had none of these things in 2017. And now in, in 2020, we have so many places Places for capital to come to Ethereum and then stay there and get sticky inside of an AMM or inside of some sort of collateralized lending position. That when when I see a dollar coming into Ethereum, I see like oh maybe twenty cents leaving in four years. Rather in twenty seventeen, I see a dollar coming in, I see a dollar going out. People aren't going to exit once they enter. They're going to leave the be bankless, bankless. ecosystem, <laughs> right? I mean, even if you obviously there's going to be um, a speculative type bubble Absolutely. in many DeFi tokens. That, that's totally obvious. But mm -hmm. even if you invest in those things and then exit because the market gets over exuberant, out of control, mm -hmm. um, are you going to exit into fiat in your Wells Fargo account? Mm -hmm. Right? Or are you going to exit to a stable coin on crypto rails? Right. Now that you know how to use all of this stuff mm -hmm. and deposit it into some DeFi protocol and get like a three to 4% return mm -hmm. versus your Wells Fargo account that's giving you nothing, 0%. Mm -hmm. Like the people in this bull run who come to DeFi, what you're saying, to come to Ethereum are actually going to stay right. after the dust settles because mm -hmm. there's a reason to stay, right? right. Like you, you, you cross the bridge and there's a whole carnival here. Yeah. Now you can like set up shop. You can hang out. Yeah. Like it's, this is the frontier. Make a tent, right? Water, so water's fine. <laughs> <laughs> totally different yeah. than, than 2017. And I think that's bullish too. You know, you know, what, one thing you know what else is, not, uh, is here in 2020 that wasn't here in the 2017 bull run? Bankless. Bankless. Me, David. It was bankless. That's <laughs> exactly no, right. That's not what you're going to say. No, that's exactly 100% what I was going to say. There are two people <laughs> that, that people love to watch that shill all of DeFi oh my God. and tell Dude. people about how to live a bankless life. And so they're going to come in and they're going to be like, I'm interested about Ethereum. What's this Uniswap thing? Where do I go to learn about it? They're going to find bankless and they're going to learn about living a bankless life. And they're going to be well, compelled by that argument. And then they're the going to keep their capital in Ethereum to base on that narrative. As a bankless community, we are creating a narrative here and a shared experience here. And David and I, when you see us on these things or when we're talking, just the tip of the iceberg of the bankless community. Mm -hmm. We have um, bankless members in Russia converting bankless content yep. into Russian and distributing that on like Telegram. Mm -hmm. We have uh, bankless 
members in France mm -hmm. spreading the message that way. And they've created a whole kind of like David and I are just doing, we are just one small part of this movement in trying to like propagate it. But this movement didn't even exist in 2017 because DeFi didn't exist in 2017. It was just associated with like ICOs and scam projects, right? And so we are planting a flag in the ground. If you're watching this, I hope like you are too, to say, we're not just speculating in this asset class. That's part of it. Of course, there's going to be upside and opportunities, but we're setting up shop here. Like this is, mm -hmm. we're settling here. This is our home. Like we are claiming this vast mm -hmm. open white space and creating a new economy here. Um, that's what I intend to do for the next decade, man. Yeah. So <laughs> I, absolutely. I, I actually think that's one of the, the uh, getting a narrative across during a yeah. bull market is really important. Like that's actually well, why, that why we started pr uh, promoting the whole Moloch thing. So like we had, we had attention and we wanted to direct that attention towards the concept of like human coordination failure. Well, now, I love that run, quote that you say so much, right? Which is basically, uh, d don't let me butcher it, but you said the most bullish thing for Bitcoin and Ether is to be understood. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Right. And like, that's the, the same is true of DeFi and this, this bankless movement. And the theses that we have put out on the Bankless program, the protocol sync thesis, the Ether, the triple point asset thesis, um, like the, the concepts and ideas that we put out so far have been proven right. And so, so long as they continue to be proven right, like I think that the Bankless narrative will continue to be proven out and more people will be, more people are compelled by theses that are proven, right? Oh my God, dude, thank God that contract made it and we made it so so we went wrong on a 95 percent prediction David. that would have destroyed our entire reputation around these things We've gone down to zero we would have gone end of end of bankless all right uh stable coins we already talked about that's uh you know it's interesting like nick carter wrote an article for bankless uh where he argued the case this is back in december of last year that stable coins might actually be parasitic to ether and now it seems like and he was laying out the case. So he didn't, to be fair to Nick, he didn't totally subscribe to it at that time, but we just talked to him and he laid out the opposite case right. that stable coins are in fact bullish for ether, right. which is super interesting. Now we have almost 20 billion, 20 billion plus 20 billion worth plus. of stable coins yeah. on Ethereum. One transaction away from purchasing ether. All, all stable coins on Ethereum are one transaction away from purchasing ether. 20 billion. Pretty crazy. Pretty That's crazy. none of that existed in 2017. Right. Yeah. Um, and as the global demand for dollars increases, which it definitely is, it's going to that that need is going to be serviced by Ethereum. And so it's just you've got growing the tentacles. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, there's also some additional alpha to be found in Ethereum. This is one of the points you raised to me when we were talking about this episode. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that, David? Yeah. So I had a, a friend text me, a college friend, non-crypto. And so I'm, I'm starting to get texts, right? Which is kind of how we know like retail starting to arrive. And uh, he, he expressed that his uh, being bummed about how he missed the boat on Bitcoin, right? He missed the party. Uh, and I told him like, well, no, you shouldn't think that because you haven't, the party's ahead of us. However, it doesn't matter that uh, regardless, retail people and people coming into this space after about hearing Bitcoin ever, you know, for 12 years now, up to 12 years now, like they heard Bitcoin back in 2013, they heard about it in 2015, 2017, and they still haven't bought it. So that cognitive dissonance about buying Bitcoin now, even though they've already known about this asset for like seven, eight, nine years, and Bitcoin is at this crazy high price tag of almost $20,000, there's going to be some cognitive dissonance there. And this is always true about bull markets is like people try and like, well, if 
damn it, I missed the boat on Bitcoin. I'm gonna buy this illiquid token that's going to pump 100X so I can like get up to where I would have been if I had bought Bitcoin back at $1,000. And those financial opportunities are DeFi tokens on Ethereum. Yes, I, I totally agree. That is bullish the asset class now, but I do have a worry about that too, David, which is XRP price has been pumping. Yeah. And so your friend, mm -hmm. unless he takes time to understand why Bitcoin and ETH are as valuable as they are and understand a little bit about capital assets and the DeFi ecosystem, the ways we sort of define, like define things, that education path, mm -hmm. then they could be like, like, oh, XRP is less than a dollar. Mm -hmm. It seems like the next Bitcoin. And by the way, this crypto YouTuber mm -hmm. uh, who has like 10,000, you know, 100,000 followers, like, mm -hmm. like subscribers says that XRP is going to be the next big thing. It's and going then to dollars That's my worry for retail. Yeah. Like, guys, if you're listening to this, don't let your friends who text you fall down these paths mm -hmm. because those roads lead to, uh, to a lot of pain and destruction. Yeah. And, and there's also, you know, I, I think Ripple and other companies that benefit from these type of trades, like are definitely culpable and like, they're, they're definitely leading, they're definitely, they're not doing it on purpose, but like they could be doing a better educational effort in making sure that the people that are purchasing their token are doing a more informed decision making process, which they're Oh, definitely I definitely think doing. Ripple's doing it on purpose. Oh, yeah, but I, I totally. However, <laughs> some I do, are not. I, so Ripple, like we, you expressed this concern that Ripple just pumped and, and Litecoin also just pumped. I actually don't think that's retail. I think that it are is traders positioning themselves because that's what they think retail will buy. And I don't actually think we know what retail will buy this time around. Uh, I think that's an unknown quantity rather than a known quantity. I actually agree with you there. I don't think we've seen retail enter. I think most of this has been institutions yep. and people that were already bullish yep. uh, crypto doubling down on it. Sorry to, to interject. The people that yeah. have had come in that are new are people that were around in 2017 and then fully exited. And then yes. those are the low hanging fruit coming back. So that's, that's maybe the people that are coming back. That's who I'm getting the text messages from. Yeah. Right. So like you kind of worry when you start to, I mean, it used to be when you start to hear from a taxi driver about an asset, right. And like the bubble sierra, that's yeah. what they used to say. Well, for, for crypto, sometimes it's getting texts from a friend. Right. So far, I've only gotten texts from people who joined crypto in 2017 right. mm -hmm. and then became like dormant right. and were sleepy. And yeah. now they're waking up. Right. I haven't gotten texts from, which I received a lot of these in 2017, the guy that is friends with the guy I know who heard that I know something about crypto and has this question about An buying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> buying Tron, right? When I get those texts, that's when right. I start to be like, okay. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that's just a heuristic. But you know, another thing I, 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 I hear sometimes, um, this is more from the, more like the, the Bitcoin only crowd, mm -hmm. but it's this. Um, I'm not interested in ETH until it's a globally adopted reserve asset. Everything's solved about scalability and DeFi runs the financial infrastructure for the world. This goes to your point about, you know, the, the text you received about some people, they mm -hmm. just are in this crypto paralysis mm -hmm. of, oh my God, should I buy or not? It's like so right. volatile. What if I, like, mm -hmm. they try to time their buys rather than just taking action and jumping in, right? Mm -hmm. And like, they'll hear something about some risk to ETH2, for example, maybe not being able to pull it off, or mm -hmm. maybe um, maybe there's uh, there's lots of concerns about ETH2. And they wait, and they wait until all of 
not only the risk has been boiled out of the asset class, mm -hmm. but all of the upside yep. has been boiled out of the asset class too. Mm -hmm. So like my retort to that is like, if you're waiting for Ether and DeFi to become the financial system for the world right. and for like central banks to buy into it and issue all of their stuff, like too late, you're waiting, you're essentially waiting until ETH is 50K in price, right? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. all the opportunity has been boiled out of it. Mm -hmm. So people also don't understand this kind of risk reward dynamic of you just got to take action sometimes if, if you believe in it. I'm, I'm sure you have friends like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I was like this back in, in 2017 where like, uh, I came in in the middle of middle to late 2017. So late, late to the show, right? Like I was yeah. the retail club being dumped on. It was the rite of passage and I'm past that point now. Um, and so I would always, I would see people that, that I met who's like, who bought OMG, which was like the 2017 token uh, at like a 20 cents. And then yeah. it pumped all the way to $20. And so what I would do is I would like backtrack and be like, well, if I had deployed my capital at these prices, I would have gotten <laughs> this rich, right? But you only ever get the full upside of the exposure if you purchase it immediately, right? You have to totally. be owning it all the way through. And that's why like I've, I'm, I was totally okay suffering through a goddamn three year long bear market where I saw my ether holdings fall down to $82 because I know that if I sell, I'm going to have to buy in later in order to access the upside. So why would I even sell now? You have to hold the asset for the entire lifespan of its cycle in order to f access the full upside of its potential, right? Like that's, that's why you bag hold during bear markets because you don't know when it starts to go up, but you do want the full exposure of when it goes up. And so when it finally does go up, you finally feel validated. That's kind of what I feel a little bit like right now when I, when I watch the price of ether, like bust through 500 and scream to 600, I feel a little bit like that. Like imagine if I had tied, tried to time that like, no, I'm just, I'm just going to make sure I gain all of the exposure to it by just being a bag holder. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's still, we think probably early in the cycle, but I mean, to be honest, it would have been way better for you to buy ETH when it dropped below a hundred, right? Right, Just yeah, like sure. in, in March, mm -hmm. right? So it, that conviction is super important and it sort of separates the, the tourists from the, from, from the believers. And I think there have been a lot of people during the crypto winter, and this has been a particularly gru grueling winter for ether, mm -hmm. right? A lot of people left, but a strong community stuck around and, you know, it's just, it's fun to celebrate that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think that, you know, there, there, there's some rewards there uh, on that side of things. David, maybe we should end this with kind of um, like super bull case for Ether. I've got a few ideas on that. Sure. Um, but where do you think, like, where do you think the market is taking us next? We said before that mm -hmm. this is 2016, right? So it's a setup for next year, which is 2017. I, I still think that's largely directionally correct right. mm -hmm. um what's your take what, what what's the next step of this bull market here so if i if i want to put on my maximally bullish hat which i usually put on every single morning um, <laughs> I, I i would i would claim that this cycle is going to be a longer cycle than last time the and that's what we've seen with bitcoin these cycles get longer and drawn out and so saying like oh we're in 2016 and next year's 2017 well we need to fit an extra year or, or maybe even two years in that time frame somewhere uh, because these cycles are getting longer and there are, are just when you recapture the institutional side of the world, institutions are by definitions bureaucracies, which have our big ships, which have lots of money that pivot that ship really slowly. Uh, and so I could, could imagine a very long, slow.
slow, drawn out bull market where capital just constantly just trickles into the space over and over and over two years. Right. And so like I maybe maybe even longer. Right. And so that's that's why I'm particularly particularly bullish on the, the concept of Ethereum 2.0 being in development in parallel to the Ethereum one DeFi chain. Because like that sentiment is that that two year, two to three year long phase of getting Ethereum 2.0 out the door, I think is going to run in parallel with a two to three year long bull market. So I think 2017 as a year could be two years long for us. Uh, and it's just a two year long just and this is something that I put out on the market Monday yesterday. And it's something I've been chewing a lot, a lot on my head uh, in my head recently is like the bull markets of this industry and why we are able to just like put it clear like bookends as to when bull markets happen and when they stop happening, at least in hindsight, the bull markets happen when the world around crypto turns its attention back to crypto and reprices the whole entire industry all in one go. Right. Yep. And so like it, it's a, it's a huge lagging effect. Like the last three years of crypto, the, the attention of the world has not been on crypto. And so that's when prices bleed out and decline. Now the world is turning the attention back to crypto saying, oh, there's a lot more here than the last time I was paying attention to crypto. I'm going to price things accordingly. And that's when Ether price goes from 200 to 600 in like, in like two and a half months, right? Like it happens really fast. And right now is when the purview, the eyes of the world are turning towards crypto and repricing this entire industry. And I think it's going to, to be a, a two year long like repricing event. I actually agree with you on that. I, I do think we've used the uh, the analogy of 2017, but it's probably the case that that 2017 is sort of an analogy that stretches right. maybe multiple years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'll I'll, I'll leave um, with uh, with these thoughts. This was kind of my take on what what things could look like in that two year time horizon, and looking at it from a how much ETH supply is actually locked, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about kind of the demand side. And these things are certainly triggers. Um, but I also think what's coming in the next two years, again, not right away, this is the first milestone of ETH2, is a big change in the supply economics of Ether as an asset. So let's say you get 25% ETH locked up by true believers who are in this for decades and they're here to stack Gwei, mm-hmm. stack ETH, right? And then you've got 20% locked in DeFi. Well, mm-hmm. is that crazy? At uh, right now, it's about six to seven percent ETH lo- ETH supply uh, locked in DeFi, right? And at the beginning of 2017, it was zero. Mm-hmm. So could that double? That's not crazy. Um, as the uh, institutions uh, sort of come, and as DeFi projects um, do well, they might consider locking a portion of their capital into balance sheets. These mm-hmm. DAOs are essentially a new type of um, crypto capital formation tool. They're like a, a corporation. So that could take up say 15%. Grayscale is already at two to 3% of all ETH that's locked. Right. Could that rise to 5%? Mm-hmm. If you get 3% in staking and we're already at half a percent right now at the very start. Well, all of that, you add that up and you've got already 70% of ETH supply pretty much locked. And then what's gonna happen, David, is in 2020, when the proof of work chain merges with the uh, proof of stake chain, mm-hmm. which is about to be launched, you get annual ETH issuance take going from 4.5% to something near zero, right? Mm-hmm. This will be less than 1%. Right. Possibly it could even graduate to the negative territory where we're actually burning more ETH 
than we are issuing and minting. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you get demand, but no supply? That's a supply side crisis. And for a scarce asset like ETH, the only direction when that happens is up. Mm -hmm. That I think is like a, a two year bull case or a three year bull case for what could happen mm -hmm. to ETH the asset. And if that's the case, we're not going to be staying at 600 for very long. <laughs> it's yeah. my take. Yeah, this is the, absolutely the right formula. Uh, I would tweak these numbers a little bit. I don't think it's actually, I don't think you actually get to uh, claim that there's never such thing as never sellers because there's literally a price for everything, right? And so like, yes. yeah, I'm, I'm a never seller because I could never really reasonably see Ether at like $1 million per token. But it's like, well, if you offer them $1 million per Ether, they're probably going to sell. Let me ask you this though, David. Sure. So um, what happens though, if your ETH is going up in value, mm -hmm. right? But also your ability to generate wealth on top of that ETH goes up in value too, mm. right? So the ability to rather than sell your ETH, why don't you just take like a very small portion of your supply and take out a loan right. on it, a collateralized mm. loan on it? Or mm. why don't you just put some of that ETH, David, into DeFi or into right. staking? And then instead of selling, you can earn a nice five to 10% right. return off that ETH and you don't have to sell. This is kind of back to the, like the Neo taking the pill, right? Like when, when this is all fully matured, mm -hmm. you won't have to sell your right. ether you know, because it becomes part of the fabric of the, uh, the economy and of the financial system. So I agree thing. with you. There's a price for everything, of right. course, but there might be, there might be some never sellers out there, at least a portion of your proceeds you might never sell because of this. Yeah. I haven't considered DeFi as infrastructure to help support you not to have to sell your ether and be able to access liquidity mm -hmm. from that in different mechanisms. That that's, that's an interesting take. That's an interesting take. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can generate like a cohort of like never sellers who like they still get the value out of their ether, but they do it from like loans rather than rather than selling. Um, yes. One thing that you did not, uh, you I think you really priced down the supply of ether in staking. I think you you said like three to five percent. I think that's going to be something like ten to fifteen percent. Um, I think that's going to be a lot higher than that. Yeah, so uh, these numbers play with these numbers right. as as you will. These are all supply sinks, I right. think, for and then burn the a asset. fuck ton with EIP one five five nine, which is is going to be native, right? To native, ETH yeah. two, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we will see. All right, David, I've gotten all the like my bullish feelings out on this mm -hmm. podcast, so I'm I'm feeling like it's pretty complete. Anything yep. else you want to say? Nope, I think we should wrap this up. This is uh, as bullish episodes as they come. All right, guys, uh, risks and disclaimers, of course. We are bullish on these assets, but this is not financial advice, not at all. ETH is risky, so is crypto, so is DeFi. You could lose what you're putting in. We're headed west, though. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone. But thanks for joining us on episode 24 of State of the Nation. We are triumphant this week. <laughs> <laughs>